Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. Class 3 machine gun dealer, next left turn. To get to Dragon Man's, you drive east from downtown Colorado Springs on Platte Avenue, past the pawn shops and the used car dealerships. Past the empty building that used to house the Walter Drake Catalog Company. Past Peterson Air Force Base, home of Air Force Space Command, where Platte turns into Highway 24. Turn right on State Highway 94, where the road runs straight east toward Kansas past the junkyards, the motocross course, and the ranches, past the low bluffs, the last contours on a landscape that gradually flattens out into the Great Plains. In the rearview mirror, Pikes Peak towers above the rest of the front range, even as it shrinks in the distance. Eventually, you'll hit a lonely stoplight at the intersection of 94 and Curtis Road. If you take a right, you'll end up at Schriever Air Force Base, headquarters of the Global Positioning System, aka GPS. Take a left, and you see signs for a different sort of fortified compound. All right. Dragon Man's. Dragon Man Drive. Dirt road. And as we drive up this dirt road leading into Dragon Man's, there's a security camera pointing right at us. Sure, they already know we're here. Pikes Peak. Yeah, see Pikes Peak in the background. Small. Okay, so there's all these shot-up cars with these bloody dummies. Uh, read every sign; it could save your life. Warning: killer dogs let loose after dark. This one's good. Is there life after death? Trespass here and find out. And then there's a mannequin with a green wig on that's covering its face <laughs> next to a shot up car with a bunch of fake blood on it this guy gave dragon man a bad check this guy was a registered democrat closed mondays closed during bad weather don't piss me off i am running out of places to bury the bodies welcome to dragon man's the home and business of the man who claims to be the most armed citizen in colorado Just wait out here for him? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I think we should just wait. I imagine he'll probably come over here. It's a clear, frigid 18 <sighs> degrees and windy this morning. But if you showed up on a midsummer day, you might be greeted by sounds like these. Today, the large dirt parking lot in front of the main building of the compound is mostly empty, save for a couple cars. There's a large metal dragon sculpture in front of a utilitarian-looking shop with tan corrugated siding. A sign on a chain-link fence topped with barbed wire warns, do not enter this store with a firearm. As we walk in through the front door, guard dogs, a pair of German shepherds, rush the fence. The whole scene is admittedly intimidating. Inside the shop, black assault rifles line the blue pegboard walls behind glass cases full of handguns. 
At the back of the store, a menagerie of vintage machine guns fills a roped-off area behind a life-size Santa Claus mannequin holding an assault rifle. Most of these guns are for sale, and that includes not just the handguns and semi-automatic rifles on the walls, but many of the machine guns as well. On top of being the alleged most armed man in Colorado, Dragon Man is also a Class 3 gun dealer. This is his shop. My name's Mel Bernstein, and they call me the Dragon Man because of my uh, Dragon motorcycle I'll show you. I built in 1967, that's before you were born. And uh, I'm the most armed citizen in the state of Colorado, ATF told me three years ago. Yeah, so that's official? Yeah, yeah. well now I got even more stuff, so uh, yeah. I got over 200 machine guns in my name. That's enough to arm a small army. Now 70 years old, Bernstein is still fit, his muscular arms covered in blurring tattoos. He's got a gray goatee, squarish silver glasses, and wears a Dragon Arms t-shirt. We ask him to show us some of his machine guns in the roped-off area behind the Santa mannequin. Here, the German one is over there. See going up on an angle? That's the MG-34. In fact, all my German guns are dated 1941-45. So that they're really worth a lot of money. You know, the, uh, this here is a 1919-30-06 anti-aircraft gun. Give you an idea, a gun like this is one of the cheapest ones, and they're $12,000. These are 50 caliber fully automatic machine guns. I have 13 of them. You know, I got M60 machine guns, Vietnam, World War II. Which one of these is the most powerful? Well, right now, on the floor, well, there's an 88-millimeter mortar, which is live. That's very powerful. There's a 60-millimeter mortar, right? And there's a 57-millimeter recallless rifle. And, and so is that, it looks like a rocket launcher or Well, it looks something. like a bazooka, yeah. you know. With the help of his daughter, Melissa, and a few other employees, Bernstein runs five businesses from his 240-acre prairie compound. There's the gun shop, a shooting range, a paintball course, a motocross track, and his motorcycle repair business. A machinist by trade, motorcycle parts used to be Bernstein's primary venture. But nowadays, his gun business is booming. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. Oh, how you doing you? today? Everything's on sale. You need a weapon for the weekend? <laughs> yeah. You need a weapon every day. Yeah? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Do you want this one, the 43? Yeah. 425, how's that? It's on sale. Sale's over in 10 minutes. People come to Dragon Man's looking for all types of guns, but he says semi-automatic assault rifles, like the controversial AR-15 and AK-47, are his best sellers. In a year that saw an unprecedented number of mass shootings and a heated national debate over who should be able to own which types of guns, sales at Dragon Man's have never been better. In fact, not long after our interview begins, we're interrupted by another shipment. Oh, hey, Macro, more guns, more guns. <laughs> more AK-47s, more AR-15s. It's a $22,000 order. How many times do you get these orders? Uh, three times a week. Yep. The guns are very, very, very popular now because uh, they're talking about it on TV. Obama's uh, threatening the American people that they're going to lose the right to have these guns. And people want to get one in their name before it happens, you know. And I want to sell as many as I can and get all the money in the bank. <laughs> yeah, look at them all. Yeah, that's a good size delivery, and I had a delivery yesterday. From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. At the end of 2015, Colorado Springs was rocked by two active shooting incidents in the span of less than a month. 
The first took place on Halloween when a man shot and killed three people, seemingly at random near downtown, before being gunned down by police. In the second shooting, the day after Thanksgiving, a man laid siege to a Colorado Springs Planned Parenthood, killing two civilians and one police officer. He wounded several others over the course of the five-hour standoff. These were followed shortly afterward by the attacks in San Bernardino, California. All of these shootings involved semi-automatic assault weapons like those sold at Dragon Man's. It was against this backdrop that we went to meet Dragon Man for ourselves. With a national debate raging about assault weapons, background checks, and what to do about gun violence in this country, we were curious to meet a man who seems to epitomize the right to bear arms. A man with machine guns, mortars, and tanks to his name. But this isn't a story about guns or gun control. This is a story about Mel Bernstein, a.k.a. Dragon Man, a proudly atheist Jew from Brooklyn, New York, who built an unlikely empire at the far edge of Colorado Springs. I was uh, born uh, December 7th, 1945, you know, Pearl Harbor Day. You know, the bomb dropped and so did I. <laughs> no, Pearl Harbor was really December, you know, 1941. I was born in 45, so I was a World War II baby. My mom's dad, you know, came from, uh, you know, overseas to uh, Ellis Island and then opened up a delicatessen, a Jewish delicatessen in Brooklyn, New York. And then he owned the apartments on the top of the delicatessen, and that's where I was born and raised. Yep. Is the deli still there? Yeah, it's burnt out. I seen it a few years ago. <laughs> that whole place looks like a bomb hit it. Wow. You know. A middle-class Jewish enclave after World War II, the neighborhood in Brooklyn where Mel was raised is now known as Crown Heights. Well, uh, Rochester Avenue in St. John's Place, you know, right now it's a very bad neighborhood. It's like the Bronx, you know, and uh, I used to get beat up in school a lot. I had to pay 25 cents protection, you know, so the big kids wouldn't beat me up. That's the way it was back then. You know, back then you could beat somebody up and get away with it. You beat somebody up now, they take you to court you know, or pull a gun on you. <laughs> You're... But, uh, your fa- yeah. Did you grow? Was your family religious, or were they yeah, observant? Yeah, well, Jewish. You know, they took me to you know, church, you know, I mean, uh, the synagogue and all that. And I, 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 don't, I don't really don't believe in the God thing. I'll be real honest with when, you. How old were you? When that you, doesn't make me a bad person. How, yeah. how old were you when you kind of were like, I'm done with this? Uh, they're 12 years old because I see they're in there. They're, they're all praying. God never shows up. Uh, it's like a waste of time. You can't even understand what they're saying. And uh, you know, it's just uh, it's all baloney. You know, it's all, uh, to me, you know what God is to me? Uh, he's on He's on my uh, dollar bills, because without that, I don't eat. You could sit in church or the synagogue for two weeks. Nobody's going to really help you. You're going to starve to death. You got to work. You snooze, you lose, you know. Did you, you, did know, you have a bar mitzvah? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. I could speak Jewish, too. You can? Yeah. You know, you know what that says? It just said that I hope you guys are done soon and you all suck. <laughs> okay, we're just joking around. <laughs> Perhaps not surprisingly, Mel wasn't much for school either. Okay, tell you the truth, I'm a high school dropout. I only went to the ninth grade, you know? And, uh, and uh, when I got kicked out of school, the principal called my mom and dad over there and said, we can't tolerate your kid. He's not learning anything. He starts a lot of fights. I was, I was already in a special class with all people like me, you know. But, uh, and then he, the principal told my mom and dad, uh, Mel is never going to amount to anything. I wish he was still alive. But uh, I only went to the ninth grade, you know. I'm not telling kids to drop out of school. It's just some kids, uh, they weren't made for school. 
I, I like mechanic shop, you know, uh, you know, uh, fixed cars and do welding, and that's what I was good at. Yeah, I didn't care when George Washington crossed the bridge, you know. <laughs> you know, what they were teaching me was uh, stupid, you know, back then. And so uh, yeah. what would you do after you dropped out? Well, they couldn't, they couldn't really kick me out because I, I didn't turn 16 yet, and they put me in Roberts Technical Trade School in New York City for mechanics and welding. Huh. And that's where I learned to be a machinist. You know, and then I was a machinist helper in Brooklyn, New York, until I was 18 years old and got drafted, you know, and had to go in the army for a couple of years. Mel did a tour in Vietnam and then made his way back to Brooklyn. It was the 60s. Custom motorcycles were all the rage, and Mel put his machinist skills to work, customizing choppers. It was during this time that he built the bike that would earn him the name Dragon Man. Yeah, this is my Dragon motorcycle. I actually have the first two I made in 1967, 1968. That's like 48 years ago. The bike looks the same. I got older. <laughs> yep. And people used to go in New York, hey, there goes the Dragon Man. So that's how I got my nickname, Dragon Man. And this is pretty wild. It shoots fire out four feet. The eyes light up. And see, there's a skid plate on the back. My record is a block and a half wheelie. Fifty years later, Mel's Dragon Bike is still his signature item. He has it stashed in his machine shop, which is right behind the gun shop. The bike has a chopper body with the high handlebars, and there's a custom bright green dragon body curling up from the back seat. When Mel sits on the bike, the dragon's head and the flamethrower in its mouth sit just above his head. Why'd you build the first one? Uh, what was, it, what was it? Yeah, because what was the inspiration? Back in the 60s, you know, people were building choppers, and this was my idea to be wild. You know, everybody wanted to be wilder than the other. You know, they had big sissy bars, big pipes going up, extended front ends, and I always liked dragons, and I had an idea you know, to, to make a, a dragon on the back of a motorcycle. So you drove this around in Brooklyn? Oh, yeah, and New York City. Yeah? Oh, I'm real popular back there. But, uh, yeah, then I brought it all out here 35 years ago when I moved here. Half my life I spent in New York and the other half here. Yep. Despite his deep ties to Brooklyn, Mel began to feel stifled by New York. He had a motorcycle repair shop in Brooklyn, and he was doing a lot of mail-order business at the time. But being in New York meant that he didn't get much work from the West Coast. Also, taxes were high, and he was sick of all the red tape he had to contend with in the city. In New York, I want to put a sign on my building, I had to get a permit. And then every year, you have to renew it. Everything's a permit. Money, 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 money. Mel decided to split the difference between the East and West Coast. He settled on 40 acres in unincorporated El Paso County, Colorado. Taxes were low, and the promise of freedom was high. But you know what the main thing I couldn't believe? They told me that I could put up a building without a permit. And I, I got a lawyer to, to find out if I needed a permit to put this building up. And they said, no, huh. you could put up anything you want. I couldn't believe it. That yeah. was the biggest amazing thing. Yeah. You know? So it's just kind of the Wild West out here. Oh, yeah. In fact, I had horses. I had six shooters. I bought a horse. I was here like uh, one month, and I bought a, a Palomino horse from uh, Tony Kacheris. He, he, he passed away already. He was a big horse trader. And I got the 44 Magnum, you know, and I got the cowboy hat. And oh man, I was like, I was into it. Yeah. Okay, you know what my mistake was? I get on a horse, uh, I told my girlfriend to take my picture, and I shot the gun. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the horse went through the barbed wire fence, didn't even stop until I hit, until I went to, you know, for the, the mailbox. And that's a mile away. I even broke the reins on one side trying to stop him. Uh, I didn't know you have to train a horse to shoot the gun, you know, but I know now. <laughs> but for Mel and his girlfriend, Terry Flannell, who would later become his wife and business partner, the move to Colorado also came with a fair amount of culture shock. 
And so what was it like out here when you first moved out I here? almost moved back. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Oh, well, there was no shopping centers. No, didn't even know what a bagel was, a roll with a hole in the middle. Uh, Domino's Pizza just opened up, and uh, the pizza tasted like, uh, I don't want to badmouth them, but it was like cardboard with ketchup on it. <laughs> you know, there was no bakeries, you know, like the nice cookies and everything back east. Mm -hmm. You know, I missed, you know, I missed and my friends. I missed a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. But over the years, well, the reason I didn't move back is because I couldn't sell the place. Despite the lack of familiar creature comforts in Colorado Springs, Mel and Terry stuck it out and built their world around them. They put up a pole barn that now houses the gun store and the machine shop. They applied for a Class 3 firearms license, which would allow them to sell and own everything from pistols to machine guns to tanks and mortars. Mel bought a full-size front loader and dug a pit adjacent to the gun store that became the firing range. The motocross track followed, as did the paintball course. And all the while, on nights and weekends and whenever else he could steal time away from the demands of the businesses, Mel was also hard at work on another project, a private museum of jaw-dropping proportions. Yeah, we close this in the winter because it gets, you'll see, it's too cold in here. Close door. After the break, the Dragon Man's life's work. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we profile Dragon Man, a.k.a. Mel Bernstein. By some estimations, Bernstein is the most armed citizen in the state of Colorado. Though we couldn't confirm that claim with authorities, it's easy enough to believe when you enter the giant, uninsulated warehouse just a stone's throw from his gun store and machine shop. Behind a heavy door sits Dragon Man's life's work. It's a cavernous, mind-boggling military museum, and it was assembled from Mel's own personal collection of weapons, vehicles, equipment, and memorabilia, which he estimates to be worth close to $10 million. The, the museum here is uh, 65,000 square feet. That's half the size of Walmart. And I extended this building 19 times. It goes from 1914 to Afghanistan. It's hard to tell how big the space truly is from any one room in the warehouse. But when he hits the lights, it's like you've entered another dimension. Hundreds of mannequins dressed in military uniforms, covered in clear plastic dry cleaning bags, line the aisles like the warriors in Chinese Emperor Qin Shi Huang's famous terracotta army. And that's just the start. I have 88 running vehicles, over 5,000 working weapons. Everything I have works. Fort Carson couldn't even say that. I have over 900 uniformed mannequins. That's more mannequins than Macy's department store in New York City. And uh, everything in here is functionable, workable. As Mel's collection grew over the last three decades, he added on to the building. The space is divided into numerous rooms, each dedicated to a different army or war. The collection is made up of rare items purchased online and through other collectors, as well as things that Dragon Man's friends in the military have given him over the years. And we're going into the Iraqi room. This is what the Fort Carson soldiers brought me back in the last 22 years. Here, look at this. 
The special forces gave me this uh, picture of this uh, palace that's south of Baghdad. They took over the palace for headquarters. They gave me a picture of the palace, sand from around the palace, pieces of the palace, the rocks from the palace, and all the money they found in the palace. And this is Saddam's palace. Right, it's one of them, right. Here's one of Saddam Hussein's limousines they shot up. See that? They gave me a picture of the limousine and a piece of his dashboard. They're always bringing me stuff back. They're still bringing me stuff back. I have no more room for it. What are these, Mel? Uh, those are RPGs. The Special Forces guys brought those. They're all empty, you know, there's no powder in them. Yep. But they're brand new. Those are armor piercing RPG rockets. You imagine if they got in the wrong hands? Wow. This is the honor row. These are guys I made friends with while I was stationed here at Fort Carson. And I told them, when you go to Iraq, wear your uniform, take a picture of you. When you come back, give me the picture and the uniform, and I'll, I'll put you in the honor row on a mannequin. And that's what all these soldiers did. And in the summer, they uh, bring their families here when they come to visit and show them their mannequin with their uniform and their picture. They're so proud. It's difficult to convey in an audio piece how well-maintained and well-organized everything in Mel's museum is. This, in spite of the fact that the floors are gravel and the building is unheated in the winter and uncooled in the summer. The walkways through the different exhibits are lined with close to 3,000 army helmets, and the rafters are lined with flags from around the world. The myriad military vehicles he owns, including half a dozen tanks, are all maintained in working order. In collector's terms, Mel is a completist. This is a flag room. I have a flag hanger from every country in the world. There's 196 countries. What's that one up there? I, I don't even know more than half of them what half of them are. <laughs> but it took me almost two years to get all these flags from embassies and all over the you know, world. Okay, look at this. This is a World War II machine gun bunker. You don't get any more realistic than this. Huh. And what makes my museum special, like I told you, see these 50 calibers and the M1 Grants, the M1 carbines? Everything works. You could put a bullet in it right now and it'll fire. Isn't that something? Here, let me show you this. Here's emergency water. I'm holding it in my right hand. See, I got three packages of them, like, uh, I don't know, maybe 60 cans. Listen, the water is still in here. It's stainless steel. It can't rust. The water's in here for 72 years. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Have you ever tried to drink one? <laughs> no, but it's probably still good. Here, look at this. I have over 100 hand grenades in those original shipping crates. Look, packed January 1943. Hey, I'm opening up the canister with the original instructions with the hand grenade. And that's live? No, there's no powder in it. If it went off, it would ruin my whole display. You know, I, I can't let that happen. You know. No, the only thing is there live, any powder in this yeah. entire building? Yeah. Oh, in yeah. The, in the bullet. Okay. So yeah. if, in the bullets, that's yeah. it. The bullet. Okay. Listen, I just picked up a bullet. Right? There's hundreds of them. Okay. They're all dated. This one's 1943. Look at that. One of the great ironies of Mel's military museum is that, while he seems to be motivated to some extent by a sense of patriotism and awe at the strength of the American military, his own experience in the military was, like many others his age, mostly regrettable. Mel was drafted at the age of 18 to fight in Vietnam. Tell us about your time in the military. Uh, well, Vietnam era. You know, I was on the M42 Dusters. Uh, they taught me all about machine guns. I was on the quad mounts that fire 450 caliber machine guns at once. You know, uh, back then, nobody even knew why we were there. You know, we're shooting Chinese people that uh, were serving us uh, Chinese food in Brooklyn, New York. You know, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, right. you know, they just make you the real mean. You know, you have to do push-ups. They cut all your hair off. Very strict. Not like, not like the Army is today, you and, know. And so did you actually go overseas? Yeah, Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right around the Mekong Delta area. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, he spent like nine months there. And I actually got hurt over there. You know, the turret swung around on the tank, so you cut my whole arm over there. And uh, I get a check from the government. But, uh, you know, uh, it could have been a lot. You know, there's a lot of kids uh, got killed and weren't as lucky as I was. Okay, 58,272 American kids got killed 1960 to 1975. You know, what a waste. Vietnam was cut at the 22nd parallel. The bad guys were Hanoi, good guys Saigon. I know a lot about Vietnam, mm. you know. So were you, were you opposed to the war while you were there? Uh, yeah, well, nobody wanted to be there. You know, it's uh, like a waste of time. You know, we wanted to be home, you know, uh, have fun. You know, they took away our uh, teenage life, like, you know. In his Vietnam room, Mel shows us a picture of himself in uniform. 18 years old, posing in front of an army truck. Okay, here's a picture of me. Here's my honorable discharge. See that? And there's Dragon Boy. I wasn't Dragon Man yet, a Dragon Boy. Oh, can we get a picture of you uh, yeah. next to the picture of you oh, there? Yeah, here, I'll hold it. <laughs> awesome. Yep, that's me. Almost looks the same. Yep, just about. Just 18 years old. Like, what the f am I doing there? Mel takes us through rooms full of memorabilia from every major U.S. conflict since World War I. His mind itself is like a machine gun, rattling off historical facts as he goes. Okay, on Iwo Jima, 36 days, February 19th to March 25th, 6,821 Marines got killed. And the uh, general in charge was Holland Smith. Anything you want to ask me? I know everything. Yeah, yep. clearly. <laughs> Tell us everything. Mel has everything from samurai swords to the conical hats worn by the Viet Cong. Some of his artifacts are downright macabre, including a collection of photographs of dead Iraqi fighters. Then there's his Nazi collection. Yeah, see, here's the Russians, we got the British, and here's Hitler's room. He wanted the biggest room. But here, this is Holocaust stuff. I have soap from Auschwitz made out of human fat. Try to find that. I got Zykon B gas canisters they used to gas the Jews with. Here's the stamp when you get off the train. They stamp your paperwork if you're going to work in a factory. There can be something slightly unsettling about Mel's matter-of-fact descriptions of these morbid artifacts. The Nazi room is filled with charged reminders of one of the darkest chapters in human history. And yet the flags, helmets, armbands, and concentration camp photographs are simply displayed like any other object in the museum. Here's every uh, Nazi gas mask from 1914 to 1945. These are my oldest helmets. That's why they're in there. They're like 125 years old. I'm going to show you something. You'll probably never see another real one. It's the rarest thing I have in a museum. This is one of 100 gun belt buckles that Hitler's bodyguards wore in 1933. I have one. There are no interpretive signs outlining the depravity of the Nazi regime, no placards proclaiming never again. The objects speak for themselves. They seem to say, this happened, these are the facts, regardless of the moral baggage. If you didn't know Mel and you didn't know his background, you might wonder whether the exhibit was intended to glorify or fetishize the Nazis, or even just to shock viewers. But Mel's apparent lack of sentimentality is buffered by his clear reverence for the history contained in these objects. This is all original stuff. Okay, see these lanterns? They came from Auschwitz uh, barracks. Maybe the last time that candle was lit was 72 years ago. Walking around the Nazi room, we began to wonder if there was a connection between Mel's Jewish heritage, his relationship to the Holocaust, and his obsession with weapons and military memorabilia. How much yeah. did the Holocaust affect your perception of, of, you know, of the importance of military strength? Well, it's a, it's a terrible thing, and it's amazing they even, it even happened. They were able to, you know, treat people like that, you know, without other countries stepping in. But for you and, personally? Well, it's terrible. 
Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. You know, look at the pictures. You know, little kids, you know, uh, you know, being starved to death and gassed and burnt to death. And, you know, Nazis were very, very, very bad and mean people. No, and, yep. and, and I, I guess I'm yep. just wondering, like, in your family when you were growing up, yeah. was that something your family talked about a lot? Was uh, it? No, no, nah, people back then really didn't talk. Even the soldiers that came back back then didn't even want to talk about it. You know, they started talking about it 20, 25 years later. You know, no, in fact, uh, my dad said they, all the soldiers were told not to talk about it when they come back to the U.S., you know, because people won't even believe it anyway. It's so terrible. You know? Do you have people who, who have said that they're offended by like all this Nazi stuff? Well, I had a couple of girls over the last, women, uh, over the last 30 years that I had the Nazi display faint right here where you're standing. And I had to take them out, give them water. Cause, uh, and they had tattoos on their arms with their numbers. There were 12, 14, 13-year-old girls that were in the concentration camps, and it brought back such bad memories. They fainted right here on the floor. I didn't even know what to do. I'm giving a tour. And all of a sudden, uh, they fall on the floor. We had to take them out and give them water. And I said, should I call the ambulance? But then, you know, they said, no, no, no. It just brings back too many memories. But see, people like that, you know, and World War II veterans are the ones I really like to talk to because they tell me stuff that's not in the history books. The Nazi room only adds to the mystery of Mel. And the mystery just keeps going. Uh, hey, I'm going to take you through my Elvis collection. You're all right. flip when you see this. You have no idea... Okay, right now I'm putting on some music. You want music or oh, yeah. we'll just talk? Oh, yeah, music. Okay, got to have music. Yeah, yeah come on in. Yeah, let's go this way. Yeah. Yeah, this brings you back in the 50s and 60s. Wow. Yeah. I got 58 restored gas pumps, 23 hot rods. Everything works. We got gas pumps. We got Coke machines. We got jukeboxes. We got cigarette machines. All this stuff in the 50s and 60s. Hey, I got the motorcycles. I guess you guys didn't expect this, huh? <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. You might expect to see this kind of collection in the home of a Hollywood star, but most definitely not in a warehouse on the plains east of Colorado Springs. You can't help but imagine it as a scene in a post-apocalyptic story, a wandering band of survivors discovering it while foraging for food in the wasteland. Again, everything is pristine, and almost everything is covered in plastic. It gives the room a sort of technicolor ghostliness, like memories that can't quite be reached. Yep, pretty cool, huh? Oh okay, what I'm showing the guys is the, I have 68 pedal cars all restored. There's my dragster, 800 horsepower. We got a train set going around the whole area here, uh, Line L trains. We got pedal cars hanging on the ceiling. We got uh, Stingray bicycles. We got Coca-Cola machines. We got popcorn machines. We got, we got everything that uh, when I grew up, what I used to, what I remember. They used to have these popcorn machines in the theaters, you know, look, 10 cents. You hold the bag underneath and you help themselves. All this stuff I had restored in California, you know. What do you think? You're not even saying nothing. Incredible. What am I going to say? Yeah, no, it's incredible. My it's jaw is on the scraping the carpet. Yeah, I'll, t I'll tell them on, t on the uh, radio. You just can't believe it. Yeah, no, yeah. this is really unbelievable. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I feel like I'm yeah. in some sort of dream, truly. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, this, all this really means a lot to me because uh, this is my uh, era, you know? Yeah. You know, I love all this stuff. It brings back a lot of memories. You know, what do the kids have today? Right. They got, what do they got? Uh, computers, they got cell phones, uh, medical marijuana, and rap music, you know? <laughs> So how, how does it feel for you to like be in here and just to sort of look around? Well, it, it brings back a million memories from Brooklyn and when I was a kid, and uh, those are the best days of my life, my yeah. teenager, yeah. you know? 
Yeah, this is really, I, I'm, I'm so happy I lived in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was the best time, uh, I think, in the, in the world, the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got stingray bicycles. The museum, the war memorabilia, and the rooms full of 50s and 60s nostalgia may as well be a map of Dragon Man's mind, a physical memory palace. And here's a picture of me, 15 years old in Brooklyn, New York, on my bicycle. Huh. Yeah, I'm showing them a picture. It's got flames on it, and uh, it says the wild one underneath the seat. Wow, so you were into yeah. customizing your stuff even back oh, then. Oh, I always loved this stuff. See, that, that's when you rolled up your dungarees. Yep. You know? <clears throat> yep. Pretty cool, huh? This is great. Yeah. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm still collecting. It still keeps coming. Dragon Man, the fierce machine gun selling, tattoo covered, fire breathing dragon motorcycle riding man who keeps a firearm every 10 feet on his property, is still Mel Bernstein. In some ways, he's still that 15-year-old on a bike with custom flames. It's not exactly a Citizen Kane moment, but it's the revelation of an infinitely softer, more sentimental person than the specter of the Dragon Man that he projects to the outside world. The military museum, in this light, could be a giant G.I. Joe collection. Do you ever see that movie, uh, you know, Night at the Museum? Yes. Boy, I hope if that happens, I'm leaving. (laughs) Yeah, here's every U.S. radio. Right here on the left. And it keeps going. There's still more to Mel and his collection. Just outside the 50s room, back in the military museum, there's a large altar that looks at first like it's just another display. This is my mom's memorial. She was a nurse in World War II. Here's a picture of me when I was born. Uh, here, three or four years old. That's me in my pedal car in Brooklyn. You that? That's a picture of my dad. He was in the Air Force. You know, my mom and dad are in the museum. This is where they wanted to be, and they seen their memorials before they passed away. How's that? Did they did they like what you were doing out Very here? proud of me. Very proud. I had that mannequin made with her face. Look at the picture. That was the last clothes she was wearing. Isn't that something? Yeah. You know, they don't want to be buried. You know, you bury somebody they've forgotten. But in the museum, at least over 3,000 people a, a year will see it, and, and I'll tell them about it. That's what she wanted. Her name was Edith. And what was your dad's name? Uh, Kermit. Kermit? Yeah, they don't even use those names anymore. <laughs> Kermit's great. Yeah, Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yep. A lot of history in here. I'll show you my father's memorial. He was a bombardier over Germany. We had his uh, funeral right in here, in the museum. Yeah. See, and uh, he's looking at uh, his memorial before he passed away. See that? That's his bombardier jacket outfit. See, and this was like a week before he passed away. These were the last clothes he was wearing. See the picture? See, and there's his ashes. So he died uh, three years, almost, you know, almost three years ago. As we leave the museum, Dragon Man points out one of the artifacts we missed on the way in. Hey, look at this. Here's a thousand-pound bomb that was never unpacked. I have four of them. That's the original shipping crate. That's the same type of bomb that was dropped in Hanoi in 1972. I got that from another museum. See, I get a lot of stuff from other museums that go out of business. Right. Yeah, you can't really have a museum that be in business. It's to honor the soldiers or a hobby. The money I do collect, it just about pays for the electric. Yeah, we're going to go right out here, and uh, we'll go in the other building. Back in the machine shop, we hope to broach a sensitive subject. Three years ago, Mel's wife Terry died suddenly in a tragic accident. But before we can ask, Mel brings it up. 
Yeah, so anyway, I'm glad I didn't move back to New York, because look what I uh, accomplished. Yeah, yep. and, and so you moved out here what year? Uh, 81. And you yep. moved with your wife at the time? No, uh, it was a girlfriend, but then we ended up getting married. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know the story, but three years ago, she got killed making a movie. Did you know that? Yeah, I read yeah. about that. Yeah, I was going to yeah. be on, I was going to have my own show on the Discovery Channel. Yeah. And we'd been filming for months and months, and then uh, they had an accident. You know, a smoke bomb is supposed to be a smoke bomb. It was a, turned into a rocket, and she's right next to me and went right through it. Just missed me. Yeah, very, very, very bad. Who would ever think that would happen? This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. In this episode, we're telling the story of Mel Bernstein, a.k.a. Dragon Man. A native New Yorker, Bernstein moved to the outskirts of Colorado Springs in 1981 with Terry Flannell, the woman who had eventually become his wife. Together they built Dragon Man's, a sprawling compound consisting of a gun shop, firing range, motocross and paintball courses, a motorcycle repair business, and a private military museum. Bernstein, who estimates that he owns more than 200 machine guns, says the ATF told him that he's the most armed citizen in the state of Colorado. In 2012, 30 years after Mel Bernstein and Terry Flannell moved to Colorado to start their business together, Flannell was tragically killed during the last minutes of filming for a Discovery Channel reality show that would star Mel and his family. Here's Mel speaking to the local ABC affiliate KRDO shortly after it happened. You know, mom's flying in, our brothers, our sisters, and they're gonna go, They're going to go, Mel, how did you ever let this happen to my daughter? It was the last 30 seconds of filming. All we had to do is hold the machine guns up. We're all lined up, me, my brother, my daughter, every, all the stars that were in the movie. And they got the smoke bombs going and walked through the smoke, with, come out of the smoke holding the machine guns. That would have been the end of the movie or the production. You know. And one of them turned into a rocket. It took off, you know, and right through it right next to me. And so yeah. it, was, it was just a malfunction of the... Yeah, of the yeah, it turned into a rocket. I don't know what went wrong, but uh, that, you know, it's an accident. Yeah. And she collapsed. That's the Did only... she collapse in your arms or in... in no, in she, I, I kept walking. I didn't even... My, my daughter's uh, scene, she, I turned around, she's crying. And then the, the smoke lifted and I see Elena, you know. Yeah, I just, you know, we couldn't see nothing. There was so much smoke. She helped you build this business up. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And so what, what did you... She what... was the backbone of the business. Here's Mel's daughter, Melissa. She was a businesswoman, she was a mother, she was, you know, a great wife. Always there supporting her husband while supporting a business, while running a business, and trying to take my sister on trips and give us the best childhood possible. I mean, she really was remarkable. After Terry's death, the family was faced with twin burdens, coping with her tragic, sudden death, and sorting out the complex legal, financial, and business arrangements that she had overseen. At the time, only myself and 
um, my best friend actually knew kind of the uh, the backbone of how to run the business and neither of us even really knew that you know when someone dies that traumatically um, you kind of go into survival mode and you don't really think about you know can you do this you know can I get out of bed this morning it's something that you just have to do and I think that we were in probably survival mode for about definitely a good six months until we found common ground and whatever we didn't know we learned we taught ourselves it was hard um, yeah I remember just memories of going through all my mom's paperwork and just trying to figure out what the heck she did because she did all of the taxes all of the paperwork for five businesses I for the life of me for a woman who only had an associate's degree she was pretty smart as Mel recalls for a period after his wife died the legal status of the gun business was hanging in the balance what did you do after that? How did you keep? How did you keep going after that? Yeah, I mean, what well, what was? Well, I mean, I had to keep going. I, I'm I'm a New Yorker. I don't give up. You know, you got to keep going. Luckily, ATF helped me with all the paperwork to put. See, Dragon Arms was in her name, you know, because she kept all the records. Uh, see, they come and check us like two, three times a year, and it, sometimes it takes two days to go through all the serial numbers and all the books. And I really don't want to be bothered with that, so I let I put it in her name. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, when she died, I had to put it in my name. So now everything's in my name. So, uh, you know, I got to keep going. But they helped me a lot. You know, they didn't really, they could have took everything out of here because it was in her name. You know, you're not supposed to have an automatic weapon if it's not in your name. But they trusted me. With the loss of his wife, Mel lost not only his best friend, but a business partner who tempered his more extravagant impulses. Again, here's his daughter, Melissa. You know, it was always really funny to see my mom and my dad because my dad's kind of the person that wants to just do what he wants. And my mom was kind of there as a buffer to tell him, like, uh, no, baby, sorry, you can't do that, you know. And so, because he always just wanted to, you know, do things that probably were a little bit, you know, maybe questionable to the average person. Like, yeah, let's just strap a bunch of 50 cals on top of a um, brand new Jeep that I bought for 60 grand, cut the top off, and go around town and ride with, like, three 50 cals on it. And my mom would be like, you know... You know, it's probably not like the best thing, but they always found a happy medium. But to be sure, Dragon Man would be Dragon Man. Back in the museum, tucked in the far corner of the Elvis room, Mel shows off a shiny late model Jeep with several machine guns mounted on it. Here's one of my attack vehicles. This has four electrically operated machine guns on it. This is all legal for me to drive around town. See my license plate, attack one, the other one's attack two. This is why nobody gives me a bad check, you know. <laughs> and so you're you're really like allowed to drive around downtown yep. with the weapons loaded yep. and everything. You, you want to know what the loophole is? Sure. I'm a class three dealer transporting my weapons, but every time I take this out, I make sure I have fresh donuts in the glove department in case I get pulled over. <laughs> yeah. Have you been pulled over? A few times, but yeah. that's new cops. They don't really know me, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. But they know me. They give me thumbs up. Uh, you know, can't do this in New York. Though Mel is, first and foremost, a born showman and natural self-marketer, he's by no means oblivious to the risks and responsibilities of owning what amounts to an armory of weapons and vehicles, big enough to outfit a small militia. Each 50 caliber machine gun on the top fires 550 rounds a minute, and the M60 machine gun fires 600 rounds a minute. So that's a lot of firepower. Yeah. You know, could you imagine if this vehicle got in the wrong hands? You know, we'd be in trouble. And you want to hear something funny? I got pictures inside. I, when I make a deposit sometimes in the morning you know, at the bank, I pull up with this. You know, and I look in the window and I see the rent-a-cop. He's running to the men's room. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, only I could get away with that. Yeah, I was going to say that yeah. the authorities here must really trust you. Oh, they do. You know, you know that, if that got in the wrong hands, forget about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that even worries me. Yeah. This is a concern okay, Mel brings up a lot. While many people might worry about the personal dangers of owning so many guns and so much artillery, Mel is confident in his own ability to keep himself, the people around him, and his collection safe. What he's less certain about is other people. And it's not just the day-to-day vigilance he keeps for potentially unruly or suspicious customers. It's the state of the world. The recent mass shootings and terrorist attacks are jarring even for a guy like Dragon Man. And when he talks about these concerns, it can seem as though Mel's compound has become as much a burden as it is a dream. You know, I got a big responsibility here to watch all this stuff. That's why I don't take vacations. I don't leave at night. You know, you, I don't. You sleep here. You live here. Oh yeah, my son lives in one th- one house. I live on the other side of the property, the other house. And this is a, especially with all this terrorist stuff going on. Uh, really, could you imagine if they got a hold of all my stuff? They could take over Colorado Springs. You know, be honest with you. Is yeah. that, have you ever had any kind of an incident like no, that? No, nobody ever tried that I know of to break in. I got three alarm systems. The dogs got, get loose, nine dogs, uh, cameras all over the place. I spent probably $40,000 on cameras, you know. I, I, could watch, I could watch my whole place from the house. Even with all the security and the weapons, there's a sense that Dragon Man still feels vulnerable in his lair. It's not that hard to take over, though. I'm just one person. You know, they could come in the back door, the front door, uh, you know. Yeah. So it seems like you have to kind of just be pretty trusting in order to do what you do. Yeah, well, you have to be nice to everybody until they show otherwise, you know. Tell you the truth, everybody is, uh, you know, I have to watch everybody. You never know what they, you know, you see what people look like uh, in the pictures of the papers, you know, like that guy that shot the uh, Aurora Theater. He just looks like a, n- a normal teenager, you know. It's not uh, that they're wild anymore and have long hair and a big beard and they're hippies. They're just like normal people on drugs, you know, with a screwed up brain. And you can't tell the difference now. It's hard to tell the difference, good and bad. So you have to, you can't trust anybody. Yep. Right or wrong. Yep. Around his shop, Mel says he keeps guns stashed every 10 feet, just in case he needs one. You gotta, you gotta be on, on the ball all the time, aware of what's going on, you know. You know, if somebody uh, suspicious comes, I go, I'll be right back. I use bathroom, and I just go to every toolbox I have has guns in it. Wow. You see that? These are all suppressive silences. Yeah. And this way, if somebody's working for me and I have to shoot somebody, you know, they, they won't bother them. Mel often jokes, but his paranoia is justified. It's a round-the-clock job, and he has to stay on his toes. We began to wonder if Mel ever feels trapped in this world that he's created. You mentioned that you really don't like to leave here uh, right. because you want to kind of make sure everything's under control. Uh, yeah. Have you, like, ever gone on vacation? No. Uh, years and years ago I did, but uh, there's, there's, there's nowhere I really like to go. Yeah. And then when I do go and get there, there's nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't like, I always worry about the place here because yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere. It's real easy, you know, to be broken in. Nobody, neighbor, they have no neighbors. You know, who's going to hear the alarm system go off? You know, they'll laugh. You know, to think it's a fire engine coming or something, you know. You know, it, uh, I got a lot to protect. I don't want all these machine guns, everything getting in the wrong hands. You know, I don't want them going to the military museum and stealing stuff or putting it on fire. You know, there's a lot of crazy people out there. Look at the way the world's going. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother you that you, you don't ever feel kind of like claustrophobic, like you're stuck here a little bit? Uh, sometimes, but uh, this is my life. I made, uh, made my bed and I don't sleep in it. 
There's a photo on Facebook of Dragon Man literally lying on a black bed surrounded by red pegboard walls full of guns, just like in his shop. When we asked about this room, it was even more apparent how much time he spends anticipating an attack. Yeah, that's my, uh, you know, secret room. But, uh, you know, if something happens here, I need weapons over there to come here. Right. You know, I can't come, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I don't sleep a lot at night, you know, worrying about everything. Yeah. Especially when all the shootings are in town and all the terrorist stuff. And, yeah. you know, when I moved here, you never heard of stuff like that. Right. You know, now you hear about it every month. In addition to thinking about what he would do if someone tried to break into his compound... He also devotes a considerable amount of thought to the question of how he'd respond in the event of a terrorist attack on the city. If it takes a good guy with a gun to stop a bad guy with a gun, Mel sees himself as a good guy with a lot of guns. If the need arose, he says he'd be eager to assist local military and law enforcement with the well-maintained equipment that he has at the ready. So I've seen you post on Facebook as well, like saying things like, uh, you know, if if the terrorists come to yeah. Colorado Springs, I'm ready. Like, would you yeah. actually get in your tank and drive down to Colorado well, Springs? Well, yeah, you know, if the uh, sheriff's department needed me and they have to bring people over here and, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, what are, you know, what am I going to do? Sit home and watch TV? <laughs> you know, you got to protect uh, your country. Yeah, that would be a big honor to fight, you know, back. Yeah. Have you talked to anybody over there, the sheriff or the... the oh, they know. Person? They know what I have. Yeah. yeah, they know. And the Space Command, too, right over here, a mile and a half. They don't have nothing over there to protect that place. They have M-16s and, and attack dogs. Huh. That That's it. You go there with dog food, that's the end of the attack dogs. They're eating, you know. <laughs> and, you know, you know, they have M-16s. You'd think they'd have tanks over there, armored personnel carriers. I said, I said to a lot of commanders, you know, they come here over the years to look at the museum. I said, well, what happens if something big happens, in t you know, over there? What are you going to do? Well, we're supposed to notify Peterson Air Force Base and Fort Carson. By the time they get permission to get the vehicles or the airplanes, you know, you know, it's like half over. Dragon Man's Museum, I'd say 30 minutes, everything's ready to go. 30 minutes. You think if you put out a call, like on social yeah. media, say, like, let's go, guys, you have a yeah. bunch of people out oh, here, Oh, yeah, too. a lot of, yeah. If you look at, uh, in fact, I put a post like that about uh, two weeks ago, and there's, uh, uh, like, 45 volunteers. They said, we're with you, Dragon Man, we'll fight with you, and this and that, and uh, uh, a couple of guys go, I, I know how to drive the tanks, the half-tracks, uh, I'm a machine gunner, you know, from Fort Carson, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, they're into it. For the record, both Space Command and the El Paso County Sheriff's Department said, due to liability issues, they wouldn't call upon a private citizen to assist in a military or law enforcement scenario. But as for the personal relationships or conversations that Dragon Man may have had with individual members of the military or law enforcement communities, they had no comment. To be sure, Dragon Man has a complicated relationship with the law. On one hand, he's a kind of self-styled outlaw, a sort of machine gun-wielding Henry David Thoreau, full of all the rugged individualism at the center of so much American mythology. On the other hand, he operates in full view of local, state, and national law enforcement, and goes to great lengths to ensure that his operation is squeaky clean, and that his weapons stay out of the hands of quote-unquote bad guys. I read also that you have one of the best records with the ATF as far as any weapons you've sold being used in any criminal right, activity. Nothing. Right, A perfect record. Yep. Perfect record. You okay. know, in fact, they had their doubts when I first, they watched me for like two or three years. They spent a lot of money, wasted a lot of money watching me. You know, it must have been pretty boring because I get up, I go out to eat, I work all day, 
go out to eat again, a little shopping, go home and go to bed. Do the same thing the next day. <laughs> and and but, what do you what do you attribute your good record to? Because obviously you can't yeah. control who's buying your guns. Well, it's up to CBI. I'm in the middle. We just do the paperwork. They say yes or no, mm. you know. But if I see a guy coming in and he smells like marijuana or he's all drunk or he's acting stupid or he wants to buy it for his friend, I could deny him. You know, I say I don't want to sell it to you. That's it. And I, luckily, I'm a big guy and I could kick him out. Citing privacy laws, Lisa Myman, spokesperson for the Colorado Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, was unable to confirm or deny that Dragon Man had a perfect record. She did confirm, however, that his operation is fully compliant with existing laws and that he operates within his rights as a citizen and a licensed Class Three firearms dealer. But again, despite Dragon Man's good standing with the authorities, when touring his museum and gun shop, it's sometimes hard to believe that an individual can legally own the things that he owns. Remember, we're not just talking machine guns, but working tanks, cannons, mortars, heavy artillery, very heavy. Short of machine guns manufactured after 1986 and chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, there are few things a citizen can't own, says Lisa Myman of the ATF. Granted, you need the right license and a lot of money. You could legally own a pipe bomb. If you so wanted to, as long as you filled out the form and paid the tax on it, you could have a surface-to-air missile if you truly wanted to. You could point it at, at people. As long as you don't shoot it at people, um, according to federal law, you're good to go as long as you have the paperwork. What about like an Apache attack helicopter or something? Yep. I mean, you'd have to have a license in order to fly it and make sure you're complying with all the FFA restrictions to, to use that Apache helicopter, but... As far as the firearms on it, very limited restrictions. It's here that you see just how seriously our government takes the Second Amendment. Wherever you stand on the issue of gun control, and whatever Dragon Man's personal opinions may be, the fact is this, he owns the weapons he owns and sells the weapons he sells because he can. As far as the ATF is concerned, that's what the right to bear arms means. And for someone like Mel, it's just in his nature to take everything he does as far as he can. Here's his daughter, Melissa, again. You know, if you've ever heard of the guy, who's the guy on The Aviator, the Howard Hughes guy, I kind of see my dad like that when you, not the neurotic, not like at the very end when he loses his mind, but sometimes it's like the OCD in people. They get, they have an interest, and then they, my dad always wanted to do things bigger and better. He's a worker, too. He's a survivor, and he, 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 he knows what he wants. He goes after it, and he kind of doesn't stop. Though not everyone takes things to the extremes that Dragon Man does, his business caters to a diverse community just as passionate about the safe use of guns and artillery as he is. Even on a bitter cold day in early December, people show up at Dragon Man's to look at guns and use the shooting range. My name is M.M. M.M. Antoine, out of Peyton, fire service, and I just... I come out here all the time just to uh, stay proficient. Yeah. What kind of firearms do you own and like what are you going to shoot today? Uh, well, I've got an a AR base, right? but I'm going to shoot my AR pistol. It's kind of like that one up there. And my uh, 45, mm -hmm. 1911. Why do you come here as opposed to going anywhere else? What do you like about Dragon Man? Oh, he's, uh, first of all, he's very personable, you know. He has good range safety officers, you know. You, you've got a versatile... Uh, ranges you know you've got 200 yards you've got 50 100 here and uh it's just a 
I like the crowd that comes here too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out on the range a little later, three young men challenge each other in a marksmanship contest with an assortment of handguns and rifles. guys work on specific things when you come out to shoot do you do you i mean obviously you guys are having like a little competition but are there specific you know is it kind of like I'm, when i go out today i'm gonna i'm gonna work on this i'm gonna shoot long range i'm gonna shoot short range that kind of a thing yeah sometimes it depends on what we bring um last time i brought an uh, ar-15 and um we were kind of working on x2 with that so it really depends on what we bring they have another I want to say 200 yard range over there. We tried that out once or twice. Uh, sometimes we do clay pigeon and just stuff like that. Whether it's just a few young men shooting 22s or the thousands who come for the annual machine gun shoot, Dragon Man's is a safe and, depending on your definition, peaceful compound. The El Paso County Sheriff's Department confirmed that, aside from his wife, no one has ever died or suffered anything more than a minor injury at Dragon Man's. And, while he's had to kick some people out over the years, Bernstein has never had to shoot anyone. You know, it takes a lot to really shoot a person. You know, it takes a, a, a person with uh, cold blood and no heart. Have you yeah. ever had to even draw a gun on anyone? Well, just overseas, shooting in the bushes and stuff. I don't know if I killed anybody, but... Uh, uh, well, in New York, I had to pull the shotgun out a few times. You know, people are a lot uh, different than back east. But I never, never, ever shot anybody. No, but I really don't want to. You know, it's a nightmare. You know, you'll remember that the rest of your life. It bother you. Dragon Man is many things. He's a high school dropout with an encyclopedic memory of U.S. history. He's a gifted machinist and mechanic. He's a compulsive collector. He's a gun and artillery nut. He's a talented talker. He's a hardworking entrepreneur with a Midas touch. But despite his success as a businessman, the money isn't what matters most to Mel. You know, and I don't, I don't even care about the money. I don't want a Jewish bank book. I want, to, I want to show off. I want to show people the machine guns, what they did, when they used them, how they work. I want to have the machine gun shoots. You know, I'd rather have that. That means more to me than, uh, you know, all the money in the bank. Perhaps more than anything, Mel Bernstein is a showman. I'm a show-off. You know, I admit it. <laughs> you know, I love showing off. You know, I get a lot of attention. I like that. You know, I want to stand out of the crowd. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Public Radio in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Original music for this episode was composed by Devin James Fry, a native of Canyon City, Colorado, who currently resides in Austin, Texas. You can hear more of his music on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Additional tracks by Chris Zabriskie. Special thanks to KRCC Programming Director Jeff Beery and General Manager Tammy Turwell. You can hear this episode again and find all the previous episodes of Wish We Were Here online at krcc.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Also, head to krcc.org for a slideshow of images from Dragon Mans. For Wish We Were Here and KRCC, I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. Thank you.